This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Here you go. Here you go. Defiant. That's the word of the day. It's sort of a phrase again. I keep doing phrases. Nothing personal word of the day means you're welcome in French. Donata. That's your welcome in Spanish. I've been saying you're welcome to a few people this week because Marlins Park was used yesterday night as an opening of Super Bowl 54 media festivities. And the media was so happy, and I am now amongst them, happy with more room, more room than there was in Atlanta when they had it at the basketball arena last year. So when we were building Marlins Park, we always wanted it to be used for other events. We always told the community it would be used for other great events be part of bids to get Super Bowls and concerts and all sorts of cool stuff. And I must tell you, when I was watching coverage of the media day, when I was watching the players and I was looking in the background, I wasn't saying de rien, which is French for your welcome, because in my head I was smiling. I actually, for the first time, during the All-Star game a little bit, during the World Baseball Classic a little bit, opening day maybe a little bit back in 2012, but seeing the ballpark being used for something other than baseball, watching the Super Bowl, the greatest, arguably, the greatest one-day event in all of sports, and maybe the greatest one-day event on the entertainment calendar, period, and it choosing Marlins Park, I got a very nice sense of accomplishment. And I started thinking about the years and the years passing, and then I was told, just when you think that things are going well, you walk into the studio, You sit next to someone. We sit in the studio. It's very humble. We all have desks and computers. I don't, I have an iPad. I don't even have a computer. And there's no, it's not even cubicles. You're just like on a trading desk for those of you back in the, in the Wall Street days. And I sit next to someone named Mariah Vargas. And I had no idea today was her birthday. So I wanted to reach out right now as publicly as possible and wish Mariah a very happy birthday because she's so great to sit next to. We're perfect partners because neither of us talk to each other, ever. So it's actually what could be even better than that. She was born in 1993, and don't tell her because she's not listening. That's the year I graduated law school. Happy birthday, Mariah. Many more. Okay, glad I got that out of the way. Just kidding, Mariah. Okay, next subject is... uh, This is a serious subject, and the NBA's got a lot to think about right now. We spent an entire show. I wanted to talk about Kobe, a lot of of issues surrounding the tragic death of him and others. But I assumed, as I was preparing my show, our show, I, I say our more than my, it is our show. There's so many people who work on it. I've got Linda directing in the back, Coca, the producer. I assumed the Lakers were playing tonight and they were going to play the Clippers. And that to me was the right move. It would give fans an opportunity to 
a, like a cathartic moment, an opportunity to say goodbye to Kobe, an opportunity for people to get together. That's why everyone's getting together around Staples Center right now. That's why people find themselves migrating to these outdoor memorials that are forming all over, whether it's at Kobe's high school or a- anywhere, certainly outside Staples Center. I never heard it referred to as the house that Kobe built. Side note, do those things change according to who dies when? I guess we could talk about that another time. But I assumed there'd be a game. And I was thinking back to what happened after Jose Fernandez died. We didn't play that day, and we had a game that day. We were the only game to be canceled, but we played the next day. And I'll never forget, more memorable than any World Series game was that game September 26th against the New York Mets when D. Gordon led off with a home run against Bartolo Colon. Why is it that the Lakers couldn't get their act together to host a game? And I'm going against everybody now on social media. Everybody who has an opinion, the way they've got a digit, says, of course you can't play tonight. The Lakers are in no emotional position to play a game tonight. Guess what? That's your job. Do your job. What they weren't prepared to do is all of the ancillary things that need to happen on one day's notice. The tribute videos, the uniform patches, figuring out how they wanted to honor Kobe, his daughter, and the seven other souls who lost their lives. It takes decision-making. You need leadership at the top. All they did was kick the can to Friday. All they did was make it so now we wait till Friday against the Trailblazers. It's more days for your clubhouse or locker room to have to deal with the outside distraction. More days that you are away from your routine. The key for an athletic team, or for anyone who suffers a loss, you want to try to get back to normal as quickly as you can. There's grieving, I understand that. I'm not talking about his wife and his children, his remaining children, or his parents. I'm talking about a team, and I'm talking about a player who was not even active. Now, is he a legend? Yes. I'm not talking about any of that. I'm talking about why, in my opinion, When you postpone a game, the message that you're giving is the wrong message. I want to give a message of strength. I want to give a message to the people of Los Angeles that we are the Lakers organization. We are organized. We are your leader. And we will see you Tuesday night at 730. And here's the schedule of events. I don't need till Friday. I don't need three more days. And the NBA came up with this cockamamie statement that they had grievance counselors available that they weren't ready, that out of ultimate respect to the Lakers organization and the grieving process, this is not me being cold. There is a grieving process, and it doesn't stop Friday. That's my point. The grieving that goes on, it doesn't stop in a day, a week, a month. Do you know in Judaism, the grieving, you actually, for a full year, you after a loved one dies, a parent, a child, a sibling, for a full year, you're in the grieving process, and then it still doesn't go away. When tragedy hits your life, it it does, not can. It will last forever. The difference between a Tuesday night and a Friday night game is de minimis. The difference is the lack of organizational preparedness and readiness. And now I hear it. I hear what you're saying in my right ear. My right ear. That's the ear without an earpiece. What I'm hearing you tell me is, listen, You're being very hard on the Lakers. You don't realize how different this is. You don't realize what an extraordinary circumstance this is. 
You don't realize the time it takes for an organization to prepare or to get ready or to deal with this type of news. And I tell you that unfortunately you're wrong. I know exactly what's happening. I know exactly what's going on in those meeting rooms. I know exactly what's happening within the halls of the NBA. They took the lead of the Lakers. This was not an NBA decision. The Clippers were fine. No logistical problems. It's it's a road home game. No issues. But from a logistical standpoint, take the extra day for the Clippers. They didn't care. I wanted to see a game tonight because selfishly, I wanted to see what the organization, how it handled it. I wanted to see the process of fans being able to move forward. I didn't want to wait till Friday. And now I have to. So obviously, I'm going to be watching the game Friday. <sighs> so people, uh, you know, this happens when, when, when a celebrity dies. And uh, this has nothing to do with Kobe. This is, uh, I've, I've fallen victim to this when someone dies tragically. You immediately start thinking, what are we doing to honor the memory of this person? And I had a rule, and this is a funny rule because it has nothing to do with life or death. But it's a rule that says after every baseball game, no decision would be made at all within 30 minutes of the end of a game. And that's a rule because when you win a game, you're so excited that you feel as though you'll never lose again. And if your GM comes to you and says, hey, take on an extra $5 million and get this pitcher, you're going to say yes because you've just won a game. Conversely, if you lose a game in the first 30 minutes, you would trade them all because you feel as though you're never gonna win another game. So my rule, and this was not shared by an owner, my owner, our owner, very few owners share this rule. It's a very good one. No decisions are made within 30 minutes of a final pitch of a game, none, literally none. The same rule applies when it comes to an honor after someone tragically dies. You cannot decide on a permanent type of memorial, that is low down the decision tree. We talk about what is necessary when you lead an organization. We talk about the decision tree of what you're doing. One of the first things the Lakers had to do, we talked about it, figure out their uniforms, how they were gonna honor Kobe, patch what it would look like, designs are being given to the Lakers to make decisions dealing with funeral arrangements and whether the team is gonna be home and transportation to and from the funeral, seating arrangements at a funeral. Those are things that are in the now. What's not in the now are more macro issues. Obviously his number's already been retired. The Hall of Fame in an easy choice that it took five minutes says, of course he's gonna be inducted as a first ballot Hall of Famer. He was already eligible for the Hall of Fame. But you have to think about precedent when you're making other such decisions. We talked about Mark Cuban and the idiocy of his decision and the absolute expediency that he showed that he shouldn't have showing up everyone else in the league by retiring number 24. But God bless social media and some of the people out there who are already calling right now. They're already calling for the NBA, stay with me, to change its silhouette logo from right now, it was developed in 1971, and it's clearly a silhouette of Jerry West. 
There is a call to change the silhouette logo to honor Kobe. And I don't mean changing it like for a day or a week. A complete change. How serious is this? Well, to me, it wasn't serious at all. And here's why. I'm going to talk a little bit about how people are reacting and some of the pressure that comes to bear. Here's how this works. There was a lot of talk in baseball about changing the silhouette logo, whether or not it should be changed to honor different players. In baseball, no one's really sure who the player is. In basketball, they're very sure. But the prospect of changing something like that, when you're the commissioner of basketball, Adam Silver, you have to remove emotion from the equation. You have to understand the ripple effect of changing the silhouette logo. What happens if, God forbid, there's another tragedy next year for a player even more beloved, more famous than Kobe Bryant? What happens if something comes out, and I'm not discussing the allegations and what happened with Kobe all those years ago in Colorado, but I guarantee you the NBA thinks about that as they think about changing their silhouette They have to get buy-in from all of their sponsors, all of their TV partners, not just the owners, not just the players. The players are the least of the people who get involved. In my view, the players should have zero say. The players' union is already basically, to me, they're chirping. Bismack Biombo is the vice president of the NBA Players Association, and he believes, he's an important guy, right? I mean, he's in the hierarchy of the union. He believes that there's going to be a call immediately where they're going to gather ideas and mull options, and he wants to change the logo. He actually was quoted as saying, we are hoping the NBA is going to do something. As a player, I think you want to see that. You just want to see that because of what the guy has meant to the game, to be honest. He then goes on, making him the logo. It's an appreciation of what the guy has done for the game of basketball, and that's what I think we all should be thinking about. That's a quote from Bismack Biombo. That is an example of a man who has zero responsibility, who has zero idea of what actually it means to do something versus to talk about something. No practical knowledge of understanding the significance and long-term impact of changing the logo. Forget the fact, buying all new basketballs, all new jerseys, forget all of that. That's just stuff, right? All of the old equipment that is around basketball, you just get new equipment, no problem. New socks, uniforms, shorts, jerseys, warm-ups, sweatshirts, hats. We'll change them all, no problem. But that's a quote that has no understanding of the significance how that change would come to pass because this was an emotional man talking, and I get it. Because for me, in the day or two or three or four after this crash, that is still the 30-minute rule of a baseball game. Because, of course, baseball, trading players, signing players, sending players to the minor leagues, that's all penny ante stuff. That's not real. That impacts one person's life. It impacts their pay. It impacts whether or not we win or lose a few more games, which may impact people who wager on our season futures bets or who love our team and want us to win and then make the playoffs. I get all that. But at the end of the day, it's certainly not life or death. What happened yesterday on Sunday was 100% about life or death, and that's why the 30-minute rule is more like the three-week rule or maybe the three-month rule. Not when it comes to smaller tributes, 
like what to do at the NBA Finals this year or what to do with uniforms or teams choosing to let the 24-second clock run out or the eight-second backward violation. But to change the logo, that's a completely, completely different situation. And I can only tell you this, the logo will not be changed. It would be way too controversial. And Kobe Bryant was a wonderful man. I don't know him, but he wasn't perfect. We know that because no one's perfect. So if we're going to change it for Kobe, let him, and this would be my prayer, let this be the final tragedy that any of us sees in our lifetime. The problem is it's not a wait to see because I try not to lose my wait to sees. And a life without tragedy is a life cut short. If you live long enough, you see it. You live it. So other sports are figuring out what to do. We've seen it. We saw what happened at Marlins Park. They actually held a moment of silence. I don't know if you saw this. It was jarring to me. It was in Miami um, on the scoreboard that, uh, that I was a part of purchasing for the ballpark. You know, when we bought the Marlins Park scoreboard, we thought that it would be so cool because it's not a square scoreboard. It's got this amazing slant to it. And when we made that purchase, it's one of the great mistakes we made. I mean, listen... There's so many mistakes we made in my tenure, in my 18 years, I can't list them on one piece of paper. But we forgot to ask our graphics people about that new scoreboard. And the reason that we forgot to ask is that when the graphic goes up on the board, it's not a full graphic, it's slanted. So you can't actually do something that looks perfect. But at Marlins Park, they had a fabulous picture of Kobe Bryant, and there was a moan of silence with the media, with fans, and with the NFL players. The question is right now, and Roger Goodell is having these discussions with his deputy commissioner, with some owners in his inner circle. The way it works in baseball is the commissioner has a few, they call it the executive council. That's sort of like your board of directors. That's the leaders. But even above that, there's a group of owners who are really the go-to guys for the commissioner who decide, you know, things that are not, don't need to be voted on, but just to take the temperature. So they're talking about right now, are we honoring Kobe? What are we doing for the Super Bowl? And I believe by doing the moment of silence on media day, that has changed now, and there no longer needs to be a moment of silence on Sunday. Now, it's a totally different audience. You'll have 45 to 50 million people watching the Super Bowl, whereas Media Day, you had fewer. But it certainly got a lot of attention. So the question is, do they want to grab that moment? And is it a week later appropriate? Or does it feel like you're using tragedy in order to bolster your ratings or bolster sort of the emotional component to put a hook in people? I think a week is too long. I personally, if I were the NFL, I would not, under any scenario, do a moment of silence. I would certainly make sure that it happened, which it did on media day, because I would allow the players to talk about it, which they are. But then that's it. We then move on to the game at hand. We've said it, and we're going to keep saying it. Always. The show goes on. And what you do, knowing that, sort of when you have a, when you're building a business, or when you're figuring out how to make a decision. The best way to make a business decision is you go from large to small, like an inverted pyramid. And what I always like to do in an inverted pyramid is you know at the bottom of that pyramid is a point, 
And in order for a pyramid to stand on a point, you better make sure, right, that it is a strong point. And so it is a very strong point that you don't want under any circumstance to be accused of milking a tragedy. You don't want to be accused of going for the, the, emotion, the emotional point. And I don't mean the point of the triangle, of course. I mean the emotional moment that, is, that feels forced. It's not natural. What they did last night in the Super Bowl was natural to me. If they do it Super Bowl Sunday, I think they risk backlash. I think they risk the possibility that people will say too much. So that's the end of that. Okay, I want to talk about uh, breaking news, which to me seems interesting to talk about because we've talked about this entire offseason. And uh, I've never been this close to spring training. Spring training starts in two weeks. And uh, there are two teams right now without a manager. And word has come out earlier today that Dusty Baker is going to be named the Astros manager. And that was reported first as a report by Bob Nightingale. But our own Jim Bowden of CBS Sports HQ, CBS Sports, baseball guru, former GM, GM of the year, executive of the year, has confirmed that Dusty Baker is going to be the manager. I'm throwing away my next two segments, and I'm going right to this. I want to talk about Dusty Baker, and I want to make sure I'm very clear. I am not talking about Dusty Baker as a minority manager. I'm not talking about Dusty Baker as a 70-year-old manager. I'm not talking about the Astros as an organization in trouble right now. I'm talking about Dusty Baker, the man, as my manager of my team. No, I am not hiring Dusty Baker. All of the people who are writing right now what a perfect hire this is, you've never been in the game. You've never been in the clubhouse. Dusty Baker is the reason I have a ring on my finger. Dusty Baker cannot manage a pitching staff. Dusty Baker, I can tell you, I know exactly what he did to Mark Pryor and Kerry Wood. I watched it. We talked about it while it was happening during the 2003 playoffs. Why would Houston hire Dusty Baker? For every reason that I told you I'm not going to talk about. Minority manager, check. 70-year-old veteran manager, check. Completely, completely non-analytical. I read somewhere said, don't kid yourself, Dusty Baker uses analytics plenty. I promise you that's not the case. The Astros are a hugely analytic team. Just ask Justin Verlander. Dusty Baker's going to be in that dugout. He's going to get told what to do by a GM who's his grandson's age. Is that the plan for you, Jim Crane? Or did you hire Dusty Baker because you knew that Major League Baseball wanted there to be some level of credibility in that dugout where you knew you'd have to give control to someone, Showalter, Gibbons, someone who had managed before, but you also knew you were going to go minority. You also knew you wanted to go with someone who's a player's manager, who can really make sure that the clubhouse is always good, who can keep out outside distractions. Can I explain to you people something, please? If someone in the media tells you that Dusty Baker 
can keep outside distractions to a minimum, they are full of it. They've never been in a clubhouse. There is no manager alive who can keep outside distractions. It doesn't exist. With cell phones, with Twitter, with the inter-Google, outside distractions are a part of life. It is a complete misnomer that Dusty Baker keeps outside distractions. Do you believe for a minute that the media will ask fewer questions of the Astros because Dusty Baker's the manager? Do you believe what you're reading, and you're going to read it for the next two days? Dusty Baker's the perfect guy to stand there and take it. Guess what, Quiet Riot? God, is that the name? I'm not going to take it. No, I'm not going to take it. We're not going to take it anymore. Do you think that Dusty Baker's going to be the only guy getting questions? That now the media will say to Jose Altuve, don't worry, I have nothing for you, Jose. I'm going to Dusty. That's all right, Alex. I get what you're saying, Mr. Bregman. I'm going right to Dusty. That's not practically how things work. The way this works is that the media will be all over the Astros, and so will the fans. Then you're going to read an article saying he's the perfect manager to help the Astros deal with the hostility of visiting teams. Could you give me a break? Just a small break and take my word for this. The manager has nothing to do with how players react in hostile environments. You think players haven't heard? You think Jose Altuve for the first time is going to hear that he's short? Or for the first time he's going to hear, you're a cheater, you stink. F you. No need to bleep that, Mikey. You think that the Astros have never heard that? You think this year is going to be so outrageous? Do you think Barry Bonds needed help from Dusty Baker to deal with the steroid issue that helped Barry Bonds get through it? He can hit way better because Dusty's protecting him. And this isn't about you, Dusty. There's no manager who would do it. So this load of garbage that has been put upon you, my listeners, about why Dusty Baker is the perfect manager is just that. Is he fine? He's fine. It's exactly who I figured they'd fire, hire. He will get fired eventually. I'm angry about my wait to see. I didn't think he'd be the veteran manager chosen. So I lost. But I will tell you this. At the end of the day, when I said the Astros are not a worse team after A.J. Hinch got fired, the Astros are not a better team now that Dusty Baker's been hired. There is no difference. And we're going to look again. There will be no difference in the future win-loss when you bet the futures. You can actually bet right now how many games the Astros are going to win. The hiring of Dusty Baker does not change that. It is a safe hire by Jim Crane in need of some level of experience to basically talk to his fans in the media, forgetting that nothing personal is here for you to tell you the truth about why he hired Dusty Baker and the reality that that hiring will do nothing but end in an absolute firing. So listen, we know that Dusty's going to stop players from speaking out, right? We know that for sure. Justin Verlander won his Cy Young. He had a great line. So the way it works is when you win Cy Young and MVP, you have to go to a dinner. Players hate that. They, they literally hate going, no matter what. And so they put on a tux or a suit or whatever they want. I've been to these dinners when we had a rookie of the year. And it's, it's fun, right? You get to be around media, players, fans. You get to celebrate an accomplishment. So Justin Verlander was celebrating his Cy Young 
win. First time he's met the media since the scandal broke for the Astros. Keep in mind who Justin Verlander is. This is Kate Upton's husband. I mean, I'm just kidding. That has nothing to do with this. I just love thinking about that. Justin Verlander's married to Kate. Can I tell you my Kate Upton story? Uh, this is an absolute true story. I was flying to uh, Australia for a, uh, to, to go to the Melbourne Cup with people, three friends of mine. It's called the Cultural Exchange Club. And each year we go to a different sporting event. And one year we went to the Melbourne Cup, which makes the Kentucky Derby look like my backyard eighth race at sort of Gulfstream. I mean, this is a major horse race. We're flying back from Australia, and I'm sure that I see Kate Upton on the plane. And I wasn't shy about it, and I introduced myself. It was Kate Upton. And this was before I actually had watched a game. I watched an entire opening day. One year we opened against the Tigers, and I watched Kate Upton had a box, which of course we made them pay for, obviously. And I visited her and watched a few innings. Very nice, very normal. Totally normal. You'd be surprised how lonely beautiful men and women are. You'd actually be surprised. Not that I have any idea other than when I talk to beautiful men and women, they're always happy to talk. So Kate Upton's on the plane, and uh, the plane lands, go to baggage, and there's a woman standing at baggage. And I go up to her because I'm, that's Kate Upton, who I had been flying with for the last 21 hours. And I said, man, that was some kind of flight, you know, how do you feel? It's amazing. You know, you look great. And she looked at me and she said, well, I had a bunch of breaks during the flight. And I said, well, what do you mean? It was the flight attendant. It was the flight attendant of our plane who looked exactly like Kate Upton, who was on the same plane from Australia as the actual Kate Upton, which makes me think, is everyone in Australia look like Kate Upton? Certainly that day they were too. So Justin Verlander's getting his, that was just a sidebar. Stay calm, Coca. God. So Justin Verlander accepts his award. He stands up and he says, I want to thank the Astros. I appreciate them. And by the way, what really helps me win and helps me is all the technology that the Astros use to win games. The crowd goes silent. They cannot believe that Justin Verlander, in the midst of this scandal, is talking about technology and how it helps the Astros win. He gets wind of it. He then corrects himself and says, what I meant was the analytics that we get to help me pitch better. And I'm aware the Astros use a ton of analytics. Every team does to help prepare pitchers. We have video, we have trends, we know the hot zones, every level of detail from level one to level 10 of how to get pitchers out. You still need to execute your pitches, which Verlander does. So Verlander got himself in quite a bit of trouble. He got out of it. But it's not ending. Players are now speaking out openly. Dallas Keuchel interviewed and introduced by the Chicago White Sox. Signed a long-term deal with the White Sox who are hoping to make the playoffs this year with their signings. Keuchel, Boris Guy, middle of the rotation guy, an Astro from 17, used to be a ground ball machine. He came out and he actually apologized. Ironically, he's not a hitter. I promise you, whatever at-bats he had, he was not listening to trash cans in 2017. He would not have been able to keep track, and this is not a reflection of his IQ. It's a reflection of pitchers are not focused on their at-bats, 99% of them. 
Madison Baumgartner being an exception. Carlos Zambrano was an exception. He liked his at-bats more than pitching, actually. So Dallas Keuchel apologizes. What a precarious position he's putting his teammates in. His old Astros teammates have not acknowledged, other than to say, we're not going to talk about it. The owner has said we're going to apologize later. Former Astros player Mike Fires has actually been the one who started this. And now Dallas Keuchel comes out and says, listen, I'm sorry. There's got to be an apology, a bigger one coming, but I'm sorry. The Dodgers start talking. Every team that meets the media is going to be asked the same question. When you lost to the Astros, do you believe it's because they were stealing your signs? Clayton Kershaw, one of the greatest regular season pitchers of all time, one of the worst offseason, offseason, excuse me, one of the worst postseason pitchers of all time. Now, does he have a little kernel of an excuse for his performance against the Astros? Well, he didn't waste a moment. He came out and said, I don't like the fact that the Astros are not being contrite enough. They're not as apologetic as I need them to be. What, what is, what's he asking? What exactly does he want? Does he want the players to say, I'm so sorry, Clayton. I knew what you were throwing, and that's why I hit you. If it weren't for knowing your signs, I never would have gotten a hit off you. Is that what players are expecting? Is that what fans are expecting? It's not going to happen. The best thing for players to do as spring training is two weeks away. I don't want to have to talk about this every day because I could. It's amazing. Some of the great quotes. I wanted to do a whole segment on Stan Kasten, the president of the Dodgers, and Andrew Friedman, the president of baseball ops. They had quotes that would knock your knickers off. They were so ridiculous that they almost made me gargle up some sort of cat hairball. But Coca said no. Usually Coca doesn't have that kind of power over me, but in this case, I allowed him to exert that power. It's like when you have people who work with you, you can't say no to them all the time. Every once in a while, there's got to be a yes just sprinkled in to give them the appearance that they've got some sort of say in what's happening. Me not talking about Kasten and Friedman was that moment for you, Matthew Coca. And by the way, I'm still talking about him. But my point is to you and to everybody, this story is still not going away because baseball has not taken the leadership role they have to. And team presidents in MLB have not taken the leadership that they were supposed to in giving these players the talking points they need. The last thing MLB wants is this type of distraction, and it's continuing and continuing. Let's go, Rob, Commissioner Manford. Get the investigation done with the Red Sox. Get the Band-Aid ripped off. This one hair at a time deal with each player after player giving their comments, it's driving me insane. So I work with a bunch of uh, anchors at CBS. One of them is uh, relatively new. Uh, her name is Amanda. She is, uh, I had never met her. She's great at what she does. I think she may have come from news. Did Amanda come from news? I may have that wrong. She did. And now she's doing sports. She's doing great. Actually down at the Super Bowl now. Radio Row, they call it. Hosting from there. She watched something, and she knows I watch something every day because I review it every day. She's a loyal listener and subscriber. I appreciate the fact that you do download and that you subscribe to this show. Believe me, I do. It's been a great month, and we're just starting. You can follow me at David P. Sampson. Please rate and review the podcast is coming up. Bonus pod is coming up. My end of month pod where I will answer your questions that you leave when you leave a review on Apple. Please remember to do that. 
If you can do five stars, it matters. The review matters to me as well, but ask a question, I'll answer it. Sort of a uh, long-term question, not a specific timely question like who's going to win the game tonight. So anyway, I review something every day, and Amanda said, you got to watch Cheer. She neglected to tell me it was a six-hour movie, and I should have asked, but I'm glad I didn't. Because if I had asked and I had been told it's a six-hour movie about cheerleading that's actually a documentary, I would have taken a hard pass, and I would have been wrong. If you don't like cheerleading or you think you know anything about it, here is what I know about cheerleading. It's a poster in my room growing up of the Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders, which was right next to the Farrah Fawcett poster in the red swimsuit. You know exactly what I'm talking about if you weren't born in 1993. I thought that's what cheerleaders were. It turns out I'm completely wrong. It's a sport. It's a sport with injuries, with concussions, with broken bones, with, with trainers, with training, with cardio work with coaches who care, with practices hours a day, every day, with competitions that are so tension-filled that you cry when you don't win. This is me talking to you about cheerleading. I feel not like less of a man because I cried watching this documentary. No, I don't. I'm totally in touch with that side of myself. Not really. But at 200 an hour, I'm trying. One hour, twice a week. I'd watch it. Just take my word for it. It's a six-part documentary. You're going to say no. Say yes. You won't regret it. It's called Cheer. It's a true story. It's a documentary. Mind-boggling. You will be emotionally attached to these characters from minute five. Five minutes, episode one. You won't be able to shut it down. Thank you. One of the stories I'm following for the Super Bowl is uh, I'm trying to find storylines that I think will be interesting to the audience. You know, I don't want to talk about X's and O's. I'm not going to talk about whether or not the Niners are going to use a cover four defense. I'm going to talk about Katie Sowers, though. Katie Sowers, if you've never heard of her, I'm going to tell you who she is. She's the offensive assistant coach for the San Francisco 49ers. Do you know in 2020... We finally, in Super Bowl 54, we have a female assistant coach on the field for the Super Bowl. First time ever. She's not just the first woman. She's also the first openly gay coach to ever appear on a Super Bowl sideline. It's like Yahtzee for the NFL. It's a dream come true in this era where gender equality matters, where everyone's looking to show their love of gender equality. They're trying to force square pegs into round holes as a way of trying to get more diversity. But wouldn't you know it, someone came along named Katie who is beyond qualified. She's not the first woman to coach in the Super Bowl because they were looking for any woman to coach. This is a woman who was the best person for the job who has been an offensive assistant to a team that is playing in the Super Bowl, who has worked day in, day out with this team of all-male players, gotten a respect from player one to 53, he says with confidence, not realizing how many players are on an actual NFL franchise waiting for Coca to tell me whether 53 is the right answer. From one to 50, 
Ah, he obviously doesn't know, and he's Googling it, and I'm not waiting for him. Thanks for nothing, Coca. He basically is so delayed that he can't produce a show and go on the Google. It's quite annoying, actually. She got the respect of the team, not as a woman, as a coach. Do you know when players respect coaches? When players can get better by listening to those coaches. Why do players want to listen to certain coaches and not others? Because certain coaches who can make players better is how they earn more money. And in football, where there are not guaranteed contracts, and you're basically year to year, if not game to game, you find a coach who makes you better at your job, and you cling. You cling. You never let go. And that's what the players are doing for the Niners. I'm not rooting for the Niners this weekend. I'm rooting for Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs and Andy Reid. But I'm rooting for the offense. I'm rooting for the San Francisco 49ers to score a lot. But not too much, and I'm going to tell you why. Because every day I've been giving you a Super Bowl prop bet of the day. And I want to give you what my prop is because it has to do with Katie. So she's an offense assistant coach for the Niners. There is a prop bet that says, question, will the game go over 76 points? Now, for those of you who don't gamble, there's no such thing as an over-under of 76 points. It's unheard of. 76 points would be a final score of 75 to 1, as an example, or 45 to 31, as another example. Do you know how many Super Bowls in history have gone over 76 points? And there's been 53 games played in history. Yes, you got it. Jason Stark just whispered it to me. That's an inside joke if you read Jason Stark. If you don't, you should. Great writer. Hall of Famer, Jason Stark. Zero. That's the number of games that have gone over 76 points. Why do I think that this Super Bowl will be different? I don't. People in this studio at CBS Sports HQ think I'm crazy because I'm telling you right now that you should bet $700 to only win 100. Seven to one, you have to lay seven to one. I would lay 20 to one because is this going to be the Super Bowl where they go over 76? People in the studio audience, workers here at CBS who do this for a living, all of whom are on their phones, all of whom gamble, bless their souls, all say, listen, it could happen. There's no value. Don't lay 700 to win 100 on a bet like that. And I try to explain to the math. The math is, it doesn't matter what you lay as long as you win. And I'm telling you, this is a winner. The no side, listen, if you want to say that the team will go over, you're going to get paid four to one? Boring. You're hoping for one out of 54 that this is the year that Mahomes and Garoppolo, this is their moment. Over 76? Nope. That's my prop bet. Stop criticizing it. Pick of the day. You know, I had a pick yesterday. We didn't do our pick of the day. Can you, do you think I'm the type of guy on my show, our show, that's two mys, I'm sorry, Matthew. Do you think that I'm the type of guy on our show where I would say we didn't do a pick of the day yesterday, but I had the heat and I want credit for having the heat because the heat did beat the magic? I'm not that guy. I'm not going to tell you that in the show rundown, it was clear with witnesses that we had the heat and that my record this year goes up to 8-5-1 and one with this undefeated streak. I'm not that guy at all. What I am the guy to do is to tell you today, we're back with picks, and you're not going to like it. I'm saying 
the Washington Wizards plus 16 versus the Milwaukee Bucks. Why am I going against Giannis? This is more about jet lag. I want to tell you what it is to fly back. They played in Paris against the Hornets. When you fly from Europe west, which is what you do coming home, obviously, from Europe, the jet lag is amazingly large. You're exhausted. You don't know what's happening to you. The general rule of thumb is it takes a day per hour of time zone that you travel west in order to fully recover for your body. It doesn't matter that you fly first class. It doesn't matter if you sleep the whole time. None of that matters. It's basically a day per time zone. The Bucks 16 over the Wizards does not take into account that they still have jet lag from Paris. Take the Wizards. Take the 16. Wait to see. We do a wait to see. And when I get them wrong, I get them wrong. Listen, I said Deion Waiters would never play for the Heat again. Somehow he's playing. I said Dusty Baker would never get one of these three managerial openings. And guess what? He did. I've gotten some right. I've gotten some wrong. I'm going Ivy League today. I've been thinking about Yale a lot today. I love Yale. I love New Haven. I love the school. I love everything about it. Everything I love about Yale. Not the athletics, because they're not perfect. But guess what? This year, pay attention, the Ivy League leading Yale Bulldogs men's basketball team is leading the conference. They're 14-4. and four. They've won four in a row, 2-0 and oh in the conference. They are going to win the Ivy League championship. They're going to get into the NCAA tournament. They're going to be the number 11 seed. That's a bonus. The wait to see is they're going into the tournament as Ivy League champs. And I know I've got Harvard people in my ear. And to all of you Harvard boys out there, I say the same thing. To me, when I look at Yale, it's business. It's nothing personal.